0: Hi, this is Tanvi Acharya with DebtWire Middle Market, and welcome to the latest installment of our Middle Market podcast. Today, we are going to explore the ongoing distress in the skilled nursing space and discuss some of the recent examples of facilities that have struggled. Joining me for that is Wayne Weitz, Managing Director at Hammond Henlon Camp H2C, a healthcare focused strategic advisory and investment banking firm. Wayne has nearly 30 years of experience in turnaround management, financial, and operational restructurings. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you. So skilled nursing facilities have been in distress for over a year now due to multiple reasons like reimbursement issues and rising labor costs. And add to that the complex relationships between key parties like the lenders, landlords, and various operators, it does not make things easier. We got to see that complexity caused problems recently in the bankruptcy of Oriana Health Systems. But before we get into the details uh, of the case, Wayne, can you give us a little background on Oriana? Why did it have to file? Who are the key players here?
1: Key players are Oriana, an operator of skilled nursing facilities. Uh, By the time they filed, there were 43 locations in seven states. And Omega, a, a REIT, a real estate investment trust. Oriana was behind on rent payments when we started following the situation closely. It was last fall, and Oriana skipped some rent payments. Oriana was Omega's largest tenant. At that point, they were $16 million behind on rent payments, and they owed Omega about $423 million in debt. And it was clear to all the parties that things couldn't go on as, as they were Oriana simply didn't have the money to make the rent payment and Omega as a REIT, was publicly traded and it had its own debt and it couldn't pay its debt if it wasn't receiving money from its tenant. So the decision was made that the two sides co-sponsored a plan of reorganization that would have reunited the business and the real estate under one umbrella. In a lot of situations, you have something called a PropCo-OpCo model, where a healthcare organization has separated out ownership of the real estate and ownership of the business. Done for a variety of reasons, we'll talk about those, But, but in general, what was going to happen here was that the REIT, the owner of the real estate, was going to wind up also being the owner of the facilities of the operations.
0: Now that we are briefed on the situation, why did the case become contentious?
1: Well, in late June, the creditors committee, which formed after the case filed, thought they had a deal with Omega. Uh, the deal originally, the plan that was co-sponsored by Omega and Oriana was going to split the company into, into two parts with one being, uh, one group being acquired by Oriana, an affiliate of Oriana, and another being transferred out to another entity. So you had the good portfolio and the bad portfolio. And as part of any bankruptcy process, particularly one of this size, you have a creditors committee who comes in representing the interest of unsecured creditors. And their goal and their objective is to get the best recovery they can on behalf of their constituents when you have the operator, the debtor, and you have a secured lender kind of fighting it out over the crumbs and the secured, the unsecured creditors are sitting on the sidelines. So an unsecured creditors committee is formed and tries to negotiate what it thinks it can get for its constituents. In this case, by late June, the Creditors Committee thought they had a deal with Omega to pay $8 million to the unsecured creditors. At some point, talking late June here, they asked Omega if the amount could be increased. And here's where the parties started disagreeing on what that meant. The committee was just trying to get a little bit more. And Omega said, "Well, since you came back to us and asked if it could be increased, we took that as a rejection of the offer. So that deal's off the table." Oh. So a few weeks later, you've got Omega announcing that they're going to terminate the restructuring support agreement, scuttle the deal that they had signed on to. They're going to terminate the DIP facility, the debtor possession financing facility that was funding the bankruptcy case. And this, the unsecured creditors committee filed an action in bankruptcy court asking the judge to require Omega to honor the terms of their restructuring support agreement. Omega was a little vague. They they terminated When they terminated the deal, they said they terminated to consider what they called alternative courses of action to protect their assets and shareholder value, but didn't really elaborate what assets they were protecting and what shareholder value. And... As time went on, Omega, it became clear that Omega was planning to use its debt to what's called credit bid, to use its debt as currency, exchange the amount it was owed for the assets and acquire all the assets but for a couple of properties in competition with the Oriana affiliated buyer. So again, you've united the real estate and the business. And it would appear that the motivation here was Omega figured out that there would be greater value for their shareholders to owning all of it versus half.
0: Where does where does that case stand right now? What's like the latest sort of development on uh, the issue?
1: Right now, there's a motion filed by Omega pending before the bankruptcy court to get the court to approve uh, Omega as a stalking horse bidder. And we're waiting for a ruling on that, and that will restart an auction process. After that, there will be the opportunity for alternative bidders to try and beat that bid. But it would appear that if this bid is approved as a stocking horse bidder, it likely will prevail.
0: Got it, got it. So, the problems that happen um, in this case, are they sort of unique to skilled nursing facilities because of how the leases are structured? Or is it pretty common in the healthcare space overall?
1: Well, what we call the Propco Opco model is actually pretty prevalent in healthcare. Um, it was developed and what the model does is you've got you separate out the property the real estate the real property from the operation so you have one entity that owns the real estate and one entity that owns the operation it's done for a couple of reasons first of all if it's a REIT a real estate investment trust that owns the property it's a tax-efficient vehicle that passes through its profits to its investors so that's on the property side the other thing it does is it it shields the value of the property theoretically um, from any liabilities. So if there are any kind of malpractice or malfeasance or or any other um, bad acts done by the operator, well, you can try to contain them inside the operating entity and not have it affect the property. Now, some courts are, are figuring this out and they're linking the two and they're saying it's an alter ego and they're piercing, it's called piercing the corporate veil. But that's kind of the reason these are set up. And you can think about them a little bit at some level, pretty basic, as a shopping mall that has a tenant that's a card store. Okay? But it's a little different than that because if a shopping mall has a card store and the card store goes out of business, well, the card store space could be refi- refilled by a clothing store. In this case, you get unique assets. So when you separate out the Propco and the Opco, And then you start having problems. You have situations where you have multiple fiduciaries. You might have a state court receiver or federal receiver appointed to oversee the Propco. And then you might have somebody different overseeing the Opco. Or you might have a receiver for the Opco, and then somebody might file the Propco into Chapter 11. And the problem here is unlike the shopping mall, where the shopping mall can just get another tenant, these... Propco, opco situations, the property and the operator in it are really inextricably linked. The property has value if it has an operator, and the operator really has value based on its operating in that location. It's not like a shoe store that has multiple locations. So, what was intended to create all sorts of economic, tax efficient, legal protection opportunities instead has become a challenge and and has become uh, there it it has given rise to a lot of contentiousness between disparate ownership
0: got it so what are some of the trends that you're observing regarding restructurings in the skilled nursing space and can you give some examples
1: sure and and just to to clarify a little bit we talked about skilled nursing and skilled nursing is a subset of the larger healthcare services industry and a lot of the problems you're seeing in skilled nursing are similar to the broader healthcare services space that are born of regulation, which changes every few years, and, and intermediation. And where you've got a gap between the patient and the provider, and that could be the facility owner, it could be the insurance company, it could be a payer. When there's some gap between the person providing the services and the person receiving the services, you're always going to have uncertainty and, and some challenges in operations. So in this case, in the skilled nursing space, the the Propco-Opco model, as we've talked about, continues to be challenged. Uh, Another case recently is the the HCP ManorCare case, where it was an attempt, a successful attempt now, to reunite the two sides. ManorCare had previously owned its real estate, and it sold its real estate off to a company called QCP. So when ManorCare struggled to make its debt its rent payments, they proceeded to put together a plan that would have allowed QCP, which owns the real estate now, to take over the operation. So, so you spun off the real estate, and then the real estate company was uh, acquiring the operation. So they filed a pre-pack, prepackaged bankruptcy in March, and in April, two companies, ProMedica and WellTower, made a combined $2 billion offer to acquire QCP just as the prepackaged bankruptcy was approved. So the result was that ProMedica stepped in as the, the party who took over ManorCare. ProMedica bought QCP and then itself was sold to Welltower. So you've got Welltower, ProMedica, QCP and ManorCare all coming together now and they do other things, but all of the ManorCare assets and business are now within one corporate family. The other thing we're seeing is, is rent restructurings. Because we talk about what happens when a landlord realizes that the tenant isn't going to be able to pay its rent. And at some point, people wake up and say, Chapter 11 is very expensive. And as you've seen from these two, the Omega Oriana situation and the HCR Matter Care situation, even if you file a prepackaged bankruptcy, even if you file a, a planned support agreement or a restructuring support agreement, that deal's not done till that deal's done and the clock is ticking and the professionals are getting paid and there's uncertainty as to patient care and financial viability, which means that your patient referrals are going to drop because referrers are going to send people to, to more stable facilities. So what's happening now is we're seeing some rent restructurings. Previously they were disfavored by the REITs because the REITs said, well, you know, we know that the operators can afford to pay the rent. Now they're waking up and they're saying, maybe we're better off restructuring this out of court. So, One REIT called Sabra and another REIT we've spoken about, Omega, have both restructured leases with an operator called Signature. They did that back in May, recognizing that the existing rent levels were unsustainable. The other thing we're seeing is that state regulators are becoming less tolerant of unsophisticated and insolvent operators. If you can't pay your staff, the state's going to take control. So this was a space where you had some smaller, you could call them mom and pop, but they grew pretty quickly, mom and pop operators who bought these little nursing homes. And they said, we're going to own one here, one there. And all of a sudden you blink and you have Skyline, unsophisticated management, gobbling up properties all over the country under different names, and then not having liquidity to pay their staff.
0: That leads right to my next question. I wanted to ask what exactly happened there? They grew quickly um, in two years, and then earlier this year, um, they announced that they're exiting the industry?
1: So what we'll call the skyline flu started in March, at least visibly. It was incubating before that, but the skyline flu started in, in March with state officials taking over locations in Nebraska and Kansas, And that continued into South Dakota, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, wherever Skyline had facilities. And what's happening is the state regulators in those states were saying, we can't allow Skyline to to have employees and not pay them. And if you don't have employees, you can't provide care. And the state regulator ultimately has the patient in mind. They want to make sure that the quality of care isn't compromised. So in each of these states, state regulators stepped in and appointed receivers who were really operators, guys who ran better shops. They weren't restructuring people yet. They weren't investment bankers. They weren't lawyers, although all of those people play in this arena now. They appointed receivers to continue the operations who were then trying to figure out where they go. So that was in March. And then by May, Skyline announced that it was going to exit the skilled nursing and managed care field but they didn't provide any other details.
0: Yeah.
1: In fact, what they said publicly is, when we have more news to share, we'll share more news. Lenders, fiduciaries, and investment bankers are now working to write the next chapter. Now, what we're hearing in the market, ear to the ground, is that Skyline's operators are still quietly involved in deals, but there's going to be a new public face as, as the operator. That's just a rumor, but it's still not clear that they're really exiting. They may simply be reducing their exposure.
0: Can they do that if they
1: choose to? Well, that's going to remain to be seen. You know, I don't know what staying in means. I don't know if they're going to license their name. I don't know if the name has value. Uh, we'll have to see if they can provide care. They may take their 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 assets, they may take their cash and try and move into a different sector, or they may try and back some people who are going to acquire these from the state-appointed professionals and be the guys back in there. It would be an end-around maneuver. One would hope it would take a good bit of scrutiny. In fact, there are state regulators on the record who approved Skyline's acquisitions as they were building and said, they seemed like good enough guys. So one would hope that they're gonna be subject to greater scrutiny and we'll see what develops.
0: Have they closed all their facilities in different states or is it still slowly like you know states are taking over the uh, receivership and appointing
1: the states have appointed receivers and in each case they're operating some they're not going to close these in in any large fashion they're going to look for new operators and that's what's happening Uh, somebody buys eight in pennsylvania somebody buys seven in massachusetts and there's some other skylines out there too uh, but, but typically, new operators are walking in saying, we're better at operating these than Skyline was, and we can inject more capital and provide patient care and create an economic opportunity.
0: So lastly, what changes do you see coming up uh, for this space in the next couple of years?
1: Well, the major change coming up will hit in October 2019, basically a year from now. And that's called PDPM, Patient Driven Payment Model. Historically, operators have been reimbursed for more complex procedures, something called resource utilization groups, and the current paradigm is called RUG-4. The more things you did for a patient, they all got itemized and you got paid for them. So there was an incentive to do more for a patient and an incentive to get paid more. Federal government, in its attempt to rein in healthcare costs, said, we don't really like incentivizing people to do things that may be unnecessary and what you had though was that operators may have lost money on long-term care day rates bed rates but they could make it up on short-term rehab because you could do all this physical therapy occupational therapy code it all out and get paid for it but now cms the centers for medicare and medicaid services is capping therapy minutes which had been used to boost reimbursement so they say well you can go do that but we're going to you know Pay you less for it. The other thing they're doing is under PDPM, this new system that's rolling out next year, they're going to be rewarding complex care and what's called comorbidity. And they're focusing on clinically relevant factors rather than codes. The reimbursements will be tied to diagnosis, not for services provided. So you're going to have a patient that you're going to accept who's going to have this diagnosis and you're going to get paid this amount of money whether you provide any therapy or not. The idea behind it is that a, a more dire diagnosis will require more care to be provided. So what'll happen is that if all services are provided, reimbursement will be less anyway. That's the fear, is that facilities will, will look to admit only people with high uh, complex conditions and then provide less care to them. And patients who need less care won't be able to get into facilities or because they won't be profitable for the provider. So this is a pretty big sea change in how you staff. And what we're seeing is that smaller operators may not be willing or able to change the way they do business. They've had a model, they operate a certain way, they know how to staff it, and they're starting to say, we've had our day in the sun, we're going to sell this to somebody else maybe a bigger operator who has already changed the way they do business or has the 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 resources to change their business model but again this gets back to what we said at the beginning which is you've got a situation that's governed by regulation and it's all well meaning and you can understand what the intentions are but when it's when the changes are are created by some rulemaking by governments, you always have uncertainty and change and, and displacement in a marketplace. And that's really what we're seeing. We're also seeing on uh, a disconnect now between reimbursements and rents because a lot of the deals that were cut with the REITs, the landlords, several years back, have escalation clauses. And let's call it 2 to 2.5% a year you're not getting the same increase in reimbursement every year now. In fact, with PDPM, reimbursements are going to go down. So you've got a whole set of leases that were signed under a different reimbursement regime several years back, and suddenly your revenue stream isn't going to keep up with it. In fact, it may drop. So that's going to cause a lot of Renegotiation and that trickles down because the REIT says, Well, I'm not going to get my rent, so I have to reduce my rents. But the REIT, who owns the real estate, frequently has a mortgage on the property, and there's a lender out there, and he's going to have to say to the lender, If they're not going to pay me as much rent, I can't pay you as much interest and in principal on the debt. I can't service the debt. So this will trickle down. The reimbursement mix issue plays into this also because if you're a high Medicaid mix provider, your reimbursement's actually falling. So your reimbursements are falling as your rents are increasing. So you say, well, what if I shift my my mix? Well, when you look at the facilities and the locations of the facilities, obviously you have some facilities that cater towards private pay, higher-end facilities because the patients can pay the freight, as it were, and then you have some other patient populations who rely on, on Medicaid, and they're very different facilities. So if you're one of those private pay facilities and your reimbursements, the portion you're getting from reimbursement is falling and your rent is going up, you don't even have the opportunity to shift your payer mix into private pay because you're already there, right? And the ones that have a high Medicaid population already simply aren't going to attract that higher private pay population. So the reimbursement rent disconnect is, is really starting to, to, will continue to be a problem in the next few years. And then finally the other thing we're seeing is managed medicare programs commercial insurers are squeezing the operators this is what we spoke about earlier about the the intermediation you've got capitation programs here you've got managed care and and you may be familiar with managed care from when everyone tried to do hmos and capitated per patient per month payments and gatekeepers and so forth so you're seeing capitation in Medicare and managed Medicare programs. So these programs run by the insurance companies are saying to the government, you pay us a certain amount per patient per month, per day, per whatever, and we'll take the risk, and you won't have to deal with the provider. And then they go to the provider and they say, well, we're going to pay you this, which is less than we paid you previously. So the government's saving money. The provider's losing money. The middleman is making money. But then it's causing the problems at the back end between the providers in the SNF space and their capital providers, whether it's the REITs or whether it's the lenders or the patients. So, again, intermediation and regulation and uncertainty and economic change continue to to be the source of turmoil in the the skilled nursing space.
0: Got it. Going back quickly to the um, disconnect between reimbursement and the rents, do you expect that because of that, like REITs will sort of keep in mind and when they sort of structure up new leases, they'll just maybe have a different structure or lower rent or, you know, maybe there'll be changes in that right from the start?
1: Well, each time you sign a lease, you're doing it based on the best information you have. So you're not going to sign a lease today that reflects the economics of four years ago today's leases have to reflect different economics. That may mean that the prop co-op co-structure doesn't necessarily work. That may mean that a facility is better off owning its real estate and oh, by the way, having more equity in the deal. It may not be as easy to pay out all your profits if there are profits. It may not be as easy to uh, use entire leverage to buy a piece of real estate. And it may lend itself towards larger, better capitalized, institutional players who can own their real estate as opposed to uh, being a tenant. At the same time, the prop co-op co-model works in some measure in terms of protection of the assets. When things are going great, all of these structures make sense. Most of these structures are put in place and leases are signed without a whole lot of thought about what the rainy day looks like. So I think you're going to continue to see deals done. You're going to see different economics in the Propco, Opco space. If you look at the, the, the REIT world, investors who follow REITs break them into several categories. There's, there's shopping malls, there's, uh, there's office buildings. The category of REIT that has been struggling most in the last three quarters, the, the, the most poorly performing sector has been healthcare REITs. And that gets back to the regulatory issues and the uncertainty surrounding it. So there's always going to be the uncertainty. Uh, you're always going to do the best you can at a certain point in time to come to a deal that works for the property owner and the operator or the group if they're doing a structure where they really do own both. Um, but yeah, I think to answer your, your earlier question, new leases are going to have to reflect new economics.
0: Got it. Perfect. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.